Reconciliation. What does this mean to you? This is the Journey with Care podcast, where we navigate honest conversations about faith, culture, and loving our neighbors. I am the host, Melvina Gabosh, and I am an Indigenous lover of Jesus. Welcome back to another episode of Journey with Care with your host, Melvina Gabosh. Today in my living room, I have the honor and the privilege to sit next to Wally McKay. He is a respected elder in our Indigenous community. He is a consultant. He is an advisor with Indian Affairs and issues amongst the Indigenous people in our communities. He has joined us to come and share some wisdom, some insight, and um, his story. He is also a residential school survivor. That's one of the reasons why I wanted him to come on and to share his experience with us, to share the things that he has gone through, his story, his testimony, how he found Christ, how he's able to be a voice and to be a champion for our Indigenous people and the love of God that he's come to know in Christ and that he shows to the communities that he goes in and he he helps and he uses his wisdom to champion the love of Christ. So I welcome you, Wally. Well, thank you very much. And I'm glad to be here to be able to share the times and my experiences in the episodes of our people. Yes. So um, one of the questions that I ask all my guests is what does reconciliation mean to you? Reconciliation has to have a number of things to be meaningful. One of those things is that there cannot be any kind of reconciliation if there is no restitution, first of all. And secondly, it has to have a healing process. And thirdly, there must be justice part that must be carried through in order to get reconciliation. So those three elements I looked at, and one of the things I see is that the failure and the shortcomings of the First Nations to really understand that they are the ones responsible to identify the benchmarks of what and when reconciliation has been achieved. Instead, we have governments throwing money at it and thinking they are having reconciliation. Yeah. That is not reconciliation. That is trying to buy out and trying to pacify the issue. So um, reconciliation is not simply saying, I am sorry. And another part says, I accept your apology. And Mm -hmm. this is what happened with Prime Minister Harper in Parliament when he made an apology on behalf of the Canadians, but nothing changed. Yeah. Uh, The system continued its colonization processes. So how can there be acceptance of that type of an apology when there is no action that follows the apology? Yeah, that's completely understandable. It can't just be in words alone. No, it cannot be. It has to be followed up with concrete developments, concrete action that will stay with the people, with society, that there are concrete steps that were taken to achieve reconciliation. What are some of the concrete developments and steps you think are needed? I think uh, some of the concrete steps that are required 
is to begin identifying some of the community needs that are there. For instance, the full acknowledgement of the community to begin a language restoration process. Language was taken away. That was one of the things that was attacked by the residents, is to take the language away. So we need to be able to have concrete steps to move towards our children, young children now, to speak the language. It was said that uh, our languages would disappear within the four decades. And I think, you know, we have to do away with that myth and revive the languages. The other thing uh, that needs to be done is to address the poverty of the communities and the people. Canada and the provinces have taken advantage of the treaties where they figure they're the landowners. In my area, it speaks to the sharing of the lands and resources. Therefore, when you have sharing, it speaks to the title of those lands and resources. So I think uh, we need to address the poverty situation of the communities. And I think the other thing that needs to be addressed is the health situation. Today, in various parts of our country, we're going through a health transformation. Uh, we have been uh, subjected to a secondary form of health service uh, where we were, are experiencing premature deaths of too many of our people. And the high rates of suicide, the mortality rate is so unbelievable uh, as compared to the general society. And I believe that uh, health has to be addressed in the context that uh, we need to be able to, as Indigenous people, First Nations, to be able to define and design the health service that's going to meet our needs. One of the things, too, is the cultural aspect of our people. There's a lot of cultural activity, which is good. I think it's good for our people and our children to be able to have their culture respected in all manners and aspects. I don't believe one can have healing or overcome the impacts of residential schools in isolation from their culture. It has to be part and parcel because that's what um, God made us to be. And so those are some of the things I see that need to happen as concrete steps. There are others, but I just share some of the things you know, that are there. I think this is happening in very slow pace. So you, yeah, you mentioned four, four different avenues. With the language, I understand that because I am the fourth generation and I don't know how to speak my language. I'm a, I'm a Cree woman from the Paw, Manitoba, and I don't know my language and I love it. I love the language. I, my grandparents used to speak it fluently around, you know, the dining room table or in fellowship with, with their brothers and sisters or people that came over to visit. And I would listen to them and I could pick up words here and there and I can, you know, kind of understand the conversation, but I was never able to speak it myself. And that was one of my desires. But I also felt being colonized and coming and moving to Winnipeg and being in, you know, the inner city, but also going to school and, and not being around many people that spoke our language. I didn't want to be one of the ones that stood out, right? Kind of in some some sense, kind of like not 
embarrassed, not ashamed, but didn't want to look different from where I was placed, where I went to school. So I didn't learn the language when my grandparents wanted to teach me. I didn't see the need for it at the time. But now that I'm older, now that I'm, I'm a woman, I wish that I learned my language. I think you're an example of the victimization of uh, the residential school syndrome and how you have successive generations that have lost their language. In my home community of Sanchego, um, we a small community. They did a study to find out why the little children were all speaking English when we didn't have television, when we didn't have telephones, when we didn't have nothing. It was a remote community. Wanted to find out why. And the reason is that uh, so many children in that day were speaking is because there was such a high number per ratio of this small community that went to residential school. And those residential school students came back and did not want their children to suffer the same consequences. Yes. So therefore, they taught the kids to speak English. And uh, that is what had the impacts of residential school. But the good thing about it is that when we were born, when you were born, you were born a Cree. Yeah. Cree is in, in you, and it is in you for to speak it. And people are coming back now, and they're relearning the language. Uh, you have non-Indigenous people that speak our languages, you know. So um, it is not impossible for the generations that have lost their language to be able to pick up their language again. And some of them have a real difficulty. And what I say to them is if you can't, and if you're not able to relearn your language, promote our languages to be taught in a very professional manner in the communities and in our, in our homes so that your grandchildren, your children and their children can speak the language and bring it back to them. You know, so it's one of the things that was taken away from us is our language. And I think it's one of the first tasks that we have is for people to regain their language. How do you think that the government are non-Indigenous or, you know, people that are trying to do reconciliation with the Indigenous people, what way can that be implemented to help us how to learn our language again? I think um, the government is, uh, again, throwing money at it. They have been doing that for the last decade. But I think um, what we're seeing is the development of our own linguists in terms of bringing the language back. And our people are now um, using the curriculum developed by our people. And I think um, with this approach, there is a real, a real advancement of um, language retention. And one of the things that I see happening in the future is that our First Nations governments, a lot of them will be using their own language as the first language of their uh, governments. And that will create uh, interest in the young people to be able to go and uh, learn their language. I think private sector people, you know, it would look good on their company portfolios that they have uh, 10 indigenous people that speak their language yeah. to speak for them. So there are things that they can do, but uh, they need to learn how to do it. Yeah. 
So going back to the four avenues you said that we can champion um, would be language, poverty, health, and culture. So poverty, what have you seen going into the communities and, and how is poverty affecting our people? And how do you feel we as a people, as Indigenous people, can overcome poverty? Poverty is the um, uh, same uh, across all reserves in Canada. The ones that are more accessible to urban centers have their level of poverty. Where there is no access to urban centers and remote, the poverty becomes more extreme. But it's interesting that the only way of addressing poverty and to come out of it is to be able to exercise what I term as um, resource equity in the lands and resources. Because by treaties, we did not surrender. We did not give up the title to our lands. We only agreed to share. There is also education and training for our people to participate. And we have a high growing numbers of our of our people who are um, benefiting from good education. We have high numbers of very highly qualified people in uh, various professional disciplines, and which is good. You bring, you know, the sad part about it is that we as First Nations, you know, uh, invest in the education of our children, but there is no employment positions at the community. Yes. So therefore, the greater society benefits from the investment in our children. Mm. At the same time, our children are able to make a decent living, but in the end, that greater benefit goes back to the society in general. So how do you think we can change that? I think changes will have to come from um, in various approaches. Um, I think... The government's put in so many millions of dollars into the community. And it's just it flows in and out because uh, there is nothing to spend money on on the reserve. So we go outside and spend money on Sobeys. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to uh, create where we become part of Sobeys. Mm-hmm. And we invest in, in those areas and buy into those areas. And therefore, we're enriching our people and our communities through that. We need to be able to invest into major um, corporations so that uh, although we may not have things right on a reserve uh, to invest in, but we're investing that money to come back again. So it comes and goes out, comes back in again. Yeah. The health is another big concern for our people. And how do you see that it, it is affecting our Indigenous people? We're so far behind in health, the state of our communities. In Thunder Bay, where I do a lot of work, it's been tagged as the amputation capital of Canada. And that just speaks to the nature and the scope of the health deficiencies. We have such high rates of um, diabetes, high rates of suicides, high rates of heart diseases, and so so forth. And uh, the reason why we have that is the failure of Canada to provide the uh, health support systems. 30 years ago, I did um, I was part of a panel to look at the health services in the remote communities 
we found that there was a pill for everything. There was a needle for everything that you and you can get any kind of medication that you need. But there was nothing in prevention or health promotion. And that is why our health is such a way, because we did not have any public health system in place. All we did was to send us to the hospital, get, you know, cut us open, give us pills and everything. That's all there was. Nothing in terms of health promotion, nothing in terms of public health systems that was totally denied to the person. And that is the reason why our health system is so bad. Uh, with the health transformation that's happening, we're looking at different approaches of how health could be done. In two communities in Northern Ontario, they were able to get a new health center. And the old health centers, they're renovating those and they're turning them into long-term care bed units uh, because their uh, older people, elders, are out in the urban centers being alone and being lonely. Now they're bringing those people back. They want to look after them there in the community. Now that's health transformation. It impacts the whole community, and it impacts the health. You know, People are going to be able to do things, and uh, they don't understand that they're transforming their health. So with uh, health changing for the better, I think it's going to make a difference. It's going to impact, improve the, what we now have, the poverty situation. It's going to improve that. It's going to improve the education of our kids and our children, you know, and it's going to impact uh, certainly the wealth of the community. So we have those things that's going to address within the communities and dealing with health. Health. You, you spoke about um, diabetes, and, and I've, I've noticed that. I've seen that there's a high number of Indigenous people that do develop diabetes. It, it's kind of generational. I, I don't know if it's it goes back to the way that we were taught how to put food into our bodies or the food that was being put into our bodies, because historically we, we were people of the land, right? Mm-hmm. And then we learned and brought on different things because of poverty and what we could afford, what we knew, and education and and. All these things you have to take into consideration or factor into the reason why our people are so far back on our health journey. You know, you said that Thunder Bay is the highest rate of amputation. You know, I I recently heard this story. My grandfather, actually, my grandfather, his leg was amputated, um, his foot because of diabetes. But I heard this story. So not too long ago, uh, a man, an elder, a respected pastor from Norway House, went into the hospital and they wanted to take his leg from him. And he said, no, he said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to allow you to take my leg. And he stood, stood strong on that. And they, 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 the doctors, they said, well, if we don't, then it's going to spread through your blood and it's going to kill you. Like your life is going to be lost. And he said, no, you're not going to take my leg. And a couple months later, I think we're going into like four or five months later, he is alive and he is well, and he's walking around. What do you what do you think to that? Like the doctors that just tried, you know, the easiest solution, take take the leg. I think one of the things we found out when we were looking at health is the shortcomings of our people to understand about their health. And um, if the nurse says something, they believe it. Uh, if the doctor says, you know, that's it. They have not taken the time to be able to look at, you're entitled to a second opinion. 
Yeah. You could be in my home community of Santiago and ask for a second opinion. You probably get it in five years if you're lucky, mm. because the uh, your not, uh, medical services will not send you to another doctor someplace just just to satisfy you. You have been told what you're diagnosed by a nurse. Many of these times, what you get is a misdiagnose, and therefore, so you have that situation, and it happens. So I think when we look at the health and uh, the things that need to be done is that we have to be able to control our health. We have to have the decision-making in our health. Yeah. We now have a high number of our people who are going into medicine, and I think we have to rely on those people. And I keep advocating that we need more doctors, we need more chemists and scientists in our areas so that we can be independent of outside diagnosis, that we can have our own people diagnose us. Before um, the colonization began, our people were very healthy and they were very strong. It's unbelievable the feats of strength that they had. And why is that? Because they lived off the land, lived off the bounty of what the Creator provided for them. It's when uh, civilization came into Canada, colonization, that uh, came with the processed food and changed our diet and things like that. And in residential schools, they feed us those things so that we left there wanting to eat some more of it. And in the communities, they wanted the same things that we wanted, that we were having. And you'll find that a very high percentage of residential school survivors are diabetic. Yeah, I agree with that. It's in the elder generation that are diabetic. And they teach the younger generation, right, of what to eat. And I understand what you're saying. And another thing about health is the mental health aspect. Mental health is a big factor to consider in communities. You said there's a high rate of suicide amongst the communities of Indigenous people. Why do you think that is? Mental health is the result of what has transpired for the last 50 years or so with our communities. And especially dealing from residential school. You cannot just put it in a clean slot and say, here it is, and here's the response to it. Mental health is a wide spectrum of events that impact certain individuals. You have residential school um, survivors that have their own mental health issues. And what Canada does is, you know, it, it uh, sends in uh, their trained people, uh, psychotherapists and those people to assess you and to tell you how you're going to get better. As a residential school survivor, you know, why does number 27, 55, 132, mm -hmm. you know, uh, bring me back to some place? No therapist, sociologist will uh, understand why. Yeah. So therefore, it's important for us as former residential school survivors to be able to define what kind of a mental health service we require. Uh, you have the children that committing suicides. Uh, everybody's, uh, it's because of poverty. Yes, it has uh, certain things about poverty that contribute to a higher rate of suicide. And we know we're starting to develop uh, the resources to get into our children's thinking. 
Why is it failing them? We have to design very unique mental health services and analysis. It was the usual practice of the health services to export our sick over to an urban center. Yeah. And they come back and uh, relapse into the same situation. That was never a solution. It was a matter of convenience. And to them, they didn't matter the cost. But now, our people are finding out they have a resource right in the community to utilize what we t- would we term as land-based treatment center approaches. We're no longer transporting our sick. We're dealing with them in our communities. And through those processes, Canada is reluctant to support financially the development and having a greater expertise. Exporting our people to urban centers supported the treatment centers and the expertise over there. Yeah. Um, now what we're saying is that we have the expertise. All we need is the resources to be able to build and continue to enhance these services. That are we're keeping families together. We're keeping children, and you know, their children are going back to school. They want to be something because we are treating them. Yeah. The last uh, factor that you talked about was culture. How do you see culture benefiting us as Indigenous people, but also us as believers? You know, culture is so misunderstood by so many sectors. The um, culture by traditional people is uh, comprehensive in how they do things. And uh, the uh, use the culture, the seven teachings of the grandfathers as the basis. And one of, one of the things, you know, the seven teachings, you know, when you look in the Bible, they're all in the Bible. Mm-hmm. They are. So when you look at the culture, you know, it is not only the dancing or the spiritual practices it includes the language. It includes the aesthetics of the, and that is the beadwork, the clothing, and everything like that. You know, I enjoy watching powwow and seeing the little children in their regalias and things like that. And I see that little kid, and um, I say, you know, that's what God made us to be—to be proud of who we are. He set us as a very special group of people. And uh, so in the culture, we have all these practices. And one of the practices is the spirituality. I've come to understand, I've been in, asked to go to different churches, whether it be Anglican, Catholic, Lutheran, or, you know, to uh, say something to them. And, you know, and they have their church practices. They have their ceremonies. You know, I don't practice them. I don't partake them. It's theirs. It's not mine. And I just respect them for that. And I look at uh, our traditional spiritual practice in the same context. I have also my choice. Yeah. And that is I accept the Lord Jesus as my personal Savior, and I read my Bible every day and seek His face, and that is my choice. And uh, I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus, I decided to have a personal relationship is not the residential school Jesus that I was forced to look at. Yeah.
thank you for that. Actually, I wanted to transition into that. You are a residential school survivor. And I wanted you to just to share a little bit about your experience at residential schools, the trauma, the things that you carried throughout the years, the healing, and ultimately you finding Jesus. How did you find Jesus through all of that and the God that you were taught and that wasn't who you you know now? Yes, I was five years old when um, I was taken to a residential school and I turned six that winter. And the trauma begins when you're taken away forcibly from your parents. People think it didn't hurt them too much. But whenever you remove a child from his or her home, from her parents, trauma begins. You sustain that trauma for the number of years that you have gone through. And after the residential school, trauma continues. They always say, Trauma doesn't go away. You get up in the morning with the trauma. You do what you have to do during the course of the day with, with the trauma. And you go to bed with the trauma. People have to understand the impacts are not simply, well, we took them home away from them. It shouldn't be so bad. Uh, they don't understand what happened during those residential school times. Ten months out of the year, I was away from home. It took away everything that I should have been taught at home. Um, you will find that the residential school survivors, they have one of the biggest failures they have is relationships because we didn't have a relationship. We had a supervisor, and we were commanded to do things, and we didn't know how to parent. We became supervisors to our own children, and our children never respected us because it is not until after I had left uh, residential school, came, came back, and I had to be reintegrated to my home and family and the traditions of my people and my father and my brothers that begin to understand who I was to be. In terms of my own spiritual life, when I was in a residential school, the missionaries from Northern Alberta, indigenous missionaries went to Santiago. And uh, they were the first ones to bring the gospel into the community. And my mother was the first one to accept the Lord as her personal Savior. The next day, my father accepted the Lord. And from there on, my father became the pastor for some close to 50 years. Um, and then others uh, started in that community to accept the Lord as their personal Savior. When I went back to um, Sachigo in the summer, I recognized and realized my father is holding uh, church meetings in the house. And I saw a real difference in things and people. There was uh, that certain um, joy in their lives. Uh, I went home to my mother and to my father. I saw them talking and, you know, interacting more than ever before as parents. And they took the time for us as children. So I begin to understand and realize that there was something different happening in the lives of my um, parents. And it was one of those summer times when I got a little older that I accepted the Lord as my personal Savior. One of the things I did is um, when the missionaries came during the summertime when I was there, I would translate for the missionaries. So people were saying, how come you understand the Bible so much? 
as a young person translating, you know, whatever I was translating stayed with me. Mm-hmm. And so I begin to understand very rapidly. It was hard going to a residential school as a child of parents who were Christians because you get your own uh, level of persecution from the supervisors, the principals, and whoever was there, including the kids, making fun of you because of your father's beliefs. And so you go through all those things. But uh, in due time, begin to understand that uh, as I got older and I became involved in leadership, that um, I had the responsibility to be able to live the life that it wasn't always perfect. There was all a lot of trials and things like that, the breakdowns and everything like that. But, you know, God had grace for that day, had grace for today, and I know he's got grace for tomorrow. Amen. So your your father was a pastor in the community. He was a Jesus lover. He was faith-based. And then you had to go to a residential school where there were nuns and priests, and they were teaching their their God. What was the difference? How did you see the difference in what they taught and to what your father taught? Well, I saw the difference in my father and mother. I saw the environment change in, our, in, in my home. I saw my brothers, their lives changing. In the residential school, you know, you're all treated alike. And it seemed like the principal would uh, say things that would focus on me because, you know, it came to the point that I would be the last one picked up for residential school. The rest of the kids would uh, be picked up and then I would be left at home. And then finally, the plane would come and pick me up. And I begin to understand after doing research why that happened. And that is they were picking up the kids that were in the Anglican uh, faith. And they took them to school because it was an Anglican-run institution. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, at the end of the time, they find out, we have a spot. We need somebody else. So they'll come and pick me up uh, because... Um, uh, the residential school, the uh, church was getting paid for person, you know, yeah. for a bed, and I uh, had to be the one to fill that bed. So you had that difference in the residential school as a young boy, you know, that um, kids would bully on me because of my father's faith, my mother's faith, and so forth. It was not only difficult because it was a residential school, there was an added element I had to contend with and realize. You know, your story of going to residential school and them wanting to come and colonize and come and teach God, teach the gospel, teach what church is to Indigenous people. But yet you have a story that's so powerful because your own community, your own father was teaching who God was at home. I always said that the gospel came with a high price to our people. My um, colleague, Peter Yellowquill, talks about the residential school, Jesus, and the price it came to us. And it is attacking a very unique aspect of who we are and what God made us to be as very special people. And to really destroy every part in us, not to be able to, but to fall in line as a good little Indian with a white heart. And so um, I, fi- I find that uh, attack, the, the bruising of our spirit, you know, that was really hurting the people today. 
we can forget about the bruises that we uh, sustained. We can forget about the numbers that were given to us. But the most traumatic area that people are having a hard time dealing with is the bruising of their spirit and the hurting of their mind. One uh, lady said, the longest trip we make when we were going to do any healing is the trip from your mind to your heart. And I added to that too, it says, it's because in the heart you have to forgive. And I can only say, you know, to really overcome the impacts of residential school is through forgiving. I have to be able to forgive people that abused me in that setting. If I don't, they control me from their graves and the claws still cling to me and they still manipulate me. And we have to love each other. We have to care for each other no matter who we are. I love my family. I love my Indian people. I love people wherever I go, no matter who they are. And with that, you know, love, love and forgiving is a combination that breaks the bonds of those uh, shackles that hold people into the present state of their trauma. Hmm. You know, um, sitting here talking with you, it, it reminds me of, you know, my upbringing. And my grandparents were residential school survivors. My uncles, aunties, my mom, that line were day school survivors. And then there was me. For many years, I, I, I felt like, well, I didn't go to residential school. I didn't go to day school. Nothing happened to me. Mm-hmm. But yet I carried the wounds. I carried the trauma of the generations before me. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why I was angry, why I was hurt, why I could not forgive, why I needed all this healing in my mind and in my heart, in my spirit, right? Why I needed all this. And it wasn't until I gave my life to the Lord when I was 30 years old that He started to reveal the generational curses, the generational trauma that I carried. Even though I didn't go, I was still very, very impacted by residential schools and that hurt. Because like you had shared is the children went to residential schools. They didn't have relationship. So they came back not knowing how to have relationship, not knowing how to parent, not knowing how to love because they couldn't love them. They didn't know how to love themselves, right? And so as you were sharing that, something clicked in me where my my mother, even my grandparents were just very dictators because mm-hmm. that's the way they were taught. Yeah. They were taught to do this and to do that. And so when I became a mother, that's how I was starting to mother, mm-hmm. was like the boss, mm-hmm. the dictator. Yeah. I was the one, do this, do that, do that. I was the provider. I provided, but I didn't know how to love. But it was until I experienced the love of Jesus was when that turned in my family and in my children's lives was when I experienced that love, he taught me how to love. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go back to when When was your first remembrance of feeling Jesus's love? The first instance um, was when I was home for the summer holidays from residential school. And it was at the house meeting that I went where my father and mother were holding house meetings. And there was something that was very special happening in those gatherings. I felt something very unique, something that you just don't forget. It's something that I hanged on, something that I always cherish, no matter what I was facing and no matter where I was going. 
And um, after being at the residential school, maybe for the fifth month of that year, I wanted to go home because there's that special environment that I can go to and know that there is love and care that is supernatural. uh, My father and my mother loved me, and I knew about it. So it was very special. But I think the most critical time was when my father was 82 years old, and I was his caregiver in Sulacout. And I was working in Sulacout, and I left a message that he wanted me to visit him. So um, I took uh, a lunch hour break and went to visit him. The lunch hour took the train to a, an afternoon visit. And um, he told me, shared with me that his time on earth will soon be uh, come by and he would be gone. But he said, I want to share something with you because you're my son that went to the residential school the longest. And he says, um, well, first time you were taken away, uh, your mother was there and your younger brother was there. And your mother would cry, and she says, I don't know if we'll ever see our son again. And she would cry, and um, my little brother would uh, cry because he was lonely for me. And my father said, I would take the time to comfort your mother and your little brother and just take the time to be with them and comfort them. And he says, um, after I comforted them, I would walk into the bush with my axe to go and cut wood. And he said, there were times when I cried for you because I didn't know there was this uncertainty. There was this feeling of, uh, I wonder what's going to happen. And he said, "Um, I wanted you to know that every time you left, your mother and I loved you very much. I was over 50 years old. Mm. And at that time, you know, I couldn't stop crying. It felt that very special thing that as if all the years, the times I missed the embrace of my mother and my father came all at me all at once. That's when my healing journey started. That's when I began to look at things differently. I felt that, you know, what happened at that moment is not natural. And I knew it was from the Lord. The healing began there. So when you ask me, what are the special times? I have a number of special times. And that was, I guess, when my father was 82 years old. And, you know, when he comforted me then, that was very special. And that's that's the greatness of God, right? That's the gentleness of God that we have so many special times with him because we're on a healing journey with the Lord. We're on that personal healing journey. And so I can think about many different times since I've I've decided to follow him, that I've decided to surrender my life to him, where I've experienced his presence, I've experienced his love, but his love and his presence come in relationship with others. And just even revelation of that relationship, revelation of, wow, you were in that God. You were there with me when I didn't think you were there, but you were there. Mm-hmm. So... You've been serving your community as a consultant, as an advisor. Um, You were a chief at one point. So throughout the years of being in leadership, what can you tell our listeners and our audience 
that you see reconciliation is happening, even if it's slow? What are some of those things throughout your experience in leadership that reconciliation is happening? Yes, I've been involved for close to 50 years with my people. Uh, I made a decision that I would do whatever I can to improve the life of my of the people. I had uh, great opportunities to join government. I refused to do it, and um, I stayed with the First Nations group to continue. I've been there. I've been a grand chief. Uh, I've been a regional chief in Ontario, and I ran for a national chief at one time, and I was a runner-up. I begin to, uh, throughout, and I've been a consultant self-employed uh, for about 25 years now. I've had the opportunity to be able to uh, provide, uh, get called upon by um, uh, a number of uh, leaders in different capacities to be their advisor. And I've had the, that opportunity. I begin to realize that I don't, I'm not the preacher like my cousin Lot Thunder is, you know. I begin to realize that I'm in a special field, and that is to be able to work with the leadership, people who are in the leadership, and to be able to stand with them and to see that uh, there is a, d- a difference in one's life when it serves Jesus. When I was a um, regional chief in Ontario, our people would do their ceremonies before they opened the meeting. And I would always walk out because I didn't want to participate in that, you know. And then one time as I was walking out, the Spirit of God impressed upon my heart says, where are you going? I said to myself, well, I'm not going to participate in this. And that's when the Spirit of God spoke into my heart. It says, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Oh, amen. I never walked out from there. I just stepped back from there and on. One time, one of the great leaders in Ontario called me and says, I want to talk to you about something. So I did. And he says, you know, Wally, whenever ceremonies are happening, I see you stepping outside. Why? I had a chance to share my experience, my personal experience with the Lord with him. Six months later, I get a call that he accepted the Lord as personal Savior. He's, he's passed on this past year. He passed on as a born-again leader. Wow. Yeah. And so when I look at all these things and look at all these things in terms of in my spiritual life, I may not be the one that dances up in the front of the church or anything like that, and uh, I may not be the one to preach out in the pulpits, all the different areas, but I respect the call that I have, and that is to be with the leaders. I often um, think about... Um, where it says, when the righteous rule, the people prosper. Mm. And I have a role and responsibility. And as a born-again Christian and a born-again leader, you know, I have a responsibility to maintain that. Nowadays, I, um, I had a speaking engagement in uh, Valdor, Quebec, uh, on uh, Indian residential schools. Through that presentation, I had an opportunity to be able to share my personal faith because I was with the leaders. And therefore, that door and that forum is there firmly. So I call it a very special blessing, special opportunity for me to reach people. Hmm. As you're answering the question, I see that 
reconciliation is so important. Yes, it's very important. And we see it being thrown around everywhere right now, right? With the non-Indigenous and the Indigenous. But in your story, in your reply, your answer to the question, reconciliation begins with us. Yes, reconciliation, I think, is misunderstood by so many. They would like to see reconciliation happen now. Reconciliation is going to take a long time. It's going to take the effort of people. It's going to take effort uh, of all the different sectors, including the churches. The churches, you know, should be the ones to understand what reconciliation by what Jesus did on the cross. But it's hard for them to realize how to do reconciliation with their um, church members who are indigenous. And um, reconciliation uh, is not going to happen uh, in the next five years. There will be small steps taken. I am encouraging the indigenous leadership to define the benchmarks. What's going to constitute reconciliation? It's important for that to happen, because if it is not, you know, the Truth and uh, Reconciliation Commission identified 94 um, calls to action, and it has been seven years, and only 17 have been uh, identified by Canada, because um, a large majority of those calls to action are against the government of Canada. Yeah. And out of those 17 that are identified, I think it's 11 of them are disputed by in, independent uh, analysts. It says, you haven't done that yet. So it's going to be a long uh, road to reconciliation. Reconciliation has to begin with you and I. It has to start in the home because the impacts, the trauma that has happened, uh, not only in residential school, but uh, the taking of children away from their homes through um, legal institutions, the Child and Family Services and other institutions, has broken our families. We have a high majority of people in penal institutions. Those families are fractured. So once you fracture the families, you know, there has to be healing that happens. Is releasing incarcerated people and say, okay, uh, we'll release them, is that reconciliation? No, that's not reconciliation. Reconciliation has to deal with not only the uh, making right what was done wrong, but also it has to deal with the spirit and the heart of man. And they have to deal with that thing. And that's going to be the tough challenge. For me, you know, that challenge with the heart was dealt with when I accepted the Lord Jesus as my personal Savior. Begin to understand that things made right. I feel confident because of that. And um, I, I don't think we should misinform each other that, um, that within the next five years, we'll get it done. We won't. The lingering effects from the 94 calls to action, it's going to be long. Governments are having problems with it now, and it's going to be a continuing problem. Yeah. It reminded me when you were speaking, and Jeremiah talks about our confidence is found in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Our confidence comes from Jesus. You know, on Journey with Care, God called me into this, this avenue that I did not know ministry. You know, like what I grew up with is going from revival to revival, the preachers, the evangelists, the prophets. You know, that's what I knew as ministry. 
And a couple years ago, God called me out of that and brought me into a different sector of ministry, a different avenue of ministry. And he's placed me around the table with leaders. And uh, a lot of the leaders that he's placed me around the table with are non-Indigenous. And what I've seen is the non-Indigenous believers, leaders, they have a heart for reconciliation. They have a heart for understanding how to effectively partner and journey with the Indigenous people. But they don't know how. They don't know how to do it. And so I know that God has given me a ministry to be a bridge, to be a voice, and to have voices come on Journey with Care and have this platform to share with the non-Indigenous people what it's going to take to partner with us, to be our allies. What, what are some of those things that you feel the non-Indigenous believers can do to have healthy collaborations with the Indigenous people? Well, let me start with the church institutions first. Our people, Indigenous people, are not coming to church. We see that. We have so many churches, and our Indigenous attendance is down low as ever before. I keep telling uh, the people in the churches, those people are not coming. So therefore, if they're not coming, then we have to go to them. Yeah. And we need to be able to build those kind of bridges and new, uh, new approaches, a new vision. I know a lot of the non-Indigenous people with their hearts in the right place, they want to help. Is it help we need? Or is it a partnership for us to design how we're going to reach our people? Mm. Is it a partnership that uh, will support our designing, our uh, definitions of what is required? One of the things I've seen uh, done uh, overdone is that as First Nations on reserves, we have become a mission field. So we look forward to missionaries in our lives. You know, I don't think we need any more missionaries. I think we need to be able to have the skills and trades and tools to be able to do things that need to be done to improve the quality of life, to improve the well-being of our people. I think we need to have partnerships with our different groups of people to be able to um, uh, stand with us and for us to have the indigenous Aboriginal design in how to make things happen. I think it's time for us to go out and to do things. You know, I think we really need to redesign how to do missionary work. And we can do the missionary work amongst our own people and our communities in a very unique, different way. I often think about um, the churches were all closed during pandemic. God allowed that to happen because I really believe that what the churches were doing was not working. It became self-serving. It became uh, that exclusionary. And God I serve is inclusive. Well, he loves everybody. He wants everybody. And I begin to realize that we need to do things differently. And I think um, reaching the people at the church meetings is not going to work. Uh, for instance, um, what is there to stop us at the Powell ground to uh, set up a booth? What is there to stop us uh, from uh, the Assembly of First Nation General Gathering to set up a booth and share Christ in there for people that want to come? 
Because one thing I know is that our people are not coming to church because they don't like the residential school Jesus. Yeah. Sitting here and you just you you just saying what you said just like nailed it. Nailed it for me. You know, God called me into a place of missionary work for a Christian organization. And recently I have left that field of work. And it was because it was a tugging on my heart, such a tugging on my heart that I feel that he doesn't do accidents. He doesn't do things by mistake. He placed me there for a reason, for me to learn and for me to see how missionaries do that work, what they do, what it is, but also to see the areas that could be changed, that effectively could be changed to reach our people. Because I know the hurt. I know the trauma. I see what, what has happened in my family in the generations. And he was starting to show me these things, show me the, where the mark is being missed and what we need as Indigenous people to move forward and to grow and to develop and to heal and to effectively just journey with Christ, who he really is. And so I have this, this desire to, to do exactly what you said, to do exactly what you said. And I feel like God is raising up those leaders He's put leaders in different avenues, different places, different sectors, different ways of ministry. And he's raising up the leaders that are going to be able to lead our people into, into true healing, into true reconciliation. And that reconciliation starts with us. That reconciliation starts with us healing, with us forgiving, mm -hmm. and then teaching and being that example to our people. Yes, I think um, how to reach our people to improve the quality of living. There is the physical quality of life that's needed a change. And there is the spiritual quality of life that needs clarity, that needs understanding, that will result in supporting one another's person's total being. And who can do that better? Nobody can do it better than you and I, yeah. as individuals who are on the ground zero, seeing what's happening, seeing what needs to be done. Many of us, many people do not have a nice fancy home to go to at the end of the day. They go to a homeless shelter. They go under the bridge. I've seen people under the bridge that are homeless. How do we reach those people? Society has failed uh, to be able to reach them. And I begin to understand through personal contacts what these people want. Yeah. And um, no matter what it is, they still, you know, we be, have to go to where they are. And we need to take the love of the love of God, the love of Christ to them. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, really like what you said when you said, we don't need another missionary. Mm -hmm. yeah. We don't. Yeah. We don't need another one. And that's what I feel like God is showing me. Yeah. That even though he called me into the missionary field, mm -hmm. that he doesn't need another one. Yeah. It's time to implement and to develop a structure of healing going forward. Yeah. It's important that we begin to identify the resources that we have at our disposal to be able to make that dream come true in terms of how do we reach our people, and not only in their spiritual lives, but also in their physical living and existence to improve the quality of life. How do we reach the communities? We are the ones to be able to design how to go about it. Yeah. I have um, a friend that I have met, David Hart, who is a musician. 
And he asked me about, uh, talked to me about his music, his secular music. And I said to David, uh, David, you're blessed with a talent. You know how to sing. You know how to perform. If you say you're not going to do the secular music anymore, you will lose 75% of your audience. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that you need to reach, the 25% yes. you already have. And you're blessed to go into that field to be able to reach them. I said, you go and reach them. That's where your talent is. That's why God gave you that talent. And I said, do you have the mountain of entertainment uh, that, uh, that Caleb said, give me this mountain? And um, you have that. I said, I have the mountain of uh, people in leadership in government that I can do that. And I can reach those people in there, you know. So um, we need to be able to design how we're going to reach people. And uh, David uh, hired his soul. People just adore him and, they, you know, they listen to him. And when he started off his uh, performance, he started off with a prayer. And when he closed off, he closed off with a prayer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people that may not have ever been in, uh, heard a prayer, heard it at that time. Heard it that day. So we need to be able to design new approaches. And I know a lot of people misunderstand because a lot of our church people became too righteous. I think we need to go into them, you know, and reach them that way. Hmm. Well, um, Wally, I thank you for coming on to Journey with Care. I had an awesome conversation with you. I think our listeners are going to, you know, receive from this podcast, from this this hour with you. And really be able to, you know, hear the wisdom and the knowledge that came from this hour. And I, I hear that we need healthy collaborations in partnership to partner with us to be able to move our people forward. And that's what I can hear. And the one thing that I want to ask you, and this might be kind of controversial, I don't know if you will, but I want to ask you, do you still remember your number? 27, 55, 127. I, I remember those numbers. Never forget them. But you know something? Remember those numbers don't hurt anymore. Mm, that's powerful. Thank you, Wally. Until we meet again, Journey with Care. Thanks for listening to the Journey with Care podcast, where paths connect over real-life stories and honest conversations. We hope you continue to join us on this journey of faith, reconciliation, and loving our neighbor. Be sure to like, follow, and share. Special thanks to host Melvina Gabosch, ARC podcast engineer Johan Heinrichs, and donors who help make this show possible. Journey with Care is an initiative of Care Impact, a Canadian charity dedicated to connecting and equipping the whole church across Canada to effectively journey in community with children and families in hard places. Learn how Care Impact is transforming the way churches engage with child welfare with our Care Portal technology and academy training. To support this podcast or to learn more about us, go to careimpact.ca or click the link in the show notes. We're so glad you are part of this journey with us as we journey with care, even in the messy. Until next time. Mm -hmm.